0: section one of the book of american negro poetry this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the book of american negro poetry edited by james weldon johnson preface part one there is perhaps a better excuse for giving an anthology of american negro poetry to the public than can be offered for many of the anthologies that have recently been issued the public generally speaking does not know that there are american negro poets to supply this lack of information is alone a work worthy of somebody's effort moreover the matter of negro poets and the production of literature by the colored people in this country involves more than supplying information that is lacking it is a matter which has a direct bearing on the most vital of american problems a people may become great through many means but there is only one measure by which its greatness is recognized and acknowledged the final measure of the greatness of all peoples is the amount and standard of the literature and art they have produced the world does not know that a people is great until that people produces great literature and art no people that has produced great literature and art has ever been looked upon by the world as distinctly inferior the status of the negro in the united states is more a question of national mental attitude toward the race than of actual conditions and nothing will do more to change that mental attitude and raise his status than a demonstration of intellectual parity by the negro through the production of literature and art is there a likelihood that the american negro will be able to do this there is for the good reason that he possesses the innate powers he has the emotional endowment the originality and artistic conception and what is more important the power of creating that which has universal appeal and influence i make here what may appear to be a more startling statement by saying that the negro has already proved the possession of these powers by being the creator of the only things artistic that have yet sprung up from american soil and been universally acknowledged as distinctive american products these creations by the american negro may be summed up under four heads the first two are the uncle remus stories which were collected by joel chandler harris and the spirituals or slave songs to which the fisk jubilee singers made the public and the musicians of both the united states and europe listen the uncle remus stories constitute the greatest body of folklore that america has produced and the spirituals the greatest body of folk song i shall speak of the spirituals later because they are more than folk songs for in them the negro sounded the depths if he did not scale the heights of music the other two creations are the cakewalk and ragtime we do not need to go very far back to remember when cakewalking was the rage in the united states europe and south america society in this country and royalty abroad spent time in practicing the intricate steps paris pronounced it the poetry of motion the popularity of the cake walk passed away but its influence remained the influence can be seen to-day on any american stage where there is dancing the influence which the negro has exercised on the art of dancing in this country has been almost absolute for generations the buck and wing and the stop-time dances which are strictly negro have been familiar to american theater audiences a few years ago the public discovered the turkey trot the eagle rock ball and the jack and several other varieties that started the modern dance craze these dances were quickly followed by the tango a dance originated by the negroes of cuba and later transplanted to south america this fact is attested by no less authority than vincente blasco Ibáñez, in his four horsemen of the apocalypse half the floor space in the country was then turned over to dancing and highly paid exponents sprang up everywhere the most noted mr vernon castle and by the way an englishman never danced except to the music of a colored band and he never failed to state to his audiences that most of his dances had long been done by your colored people as he put it any one who witnesses a musical production in which there is dancing cannot fail to notice the negro stamp on all the movements a stamp which even the great vogue of russian dances that swept the country about the time of the popular dance craze could not affect that peculiar swaying of the shoulders which you see done everywhere by the blond girls of the chorus is nothing more than a movement from the negro dance referred to above the eagle rock occasionally the movement takes on a suggestion of the now outlawed shimmy. As for ragtime, I go straight to the statement that it is the one artistic production by which America is known the world over. It has been all-conquering. Everywhere it is hailed as American music. For a dozen years or so there has been a steady tendency to divorce ragtime from the Negro, in fact to take from him the credit of having originated it probably the younger people of the present generation do not know that ragtime is of negro origin the change wrought in ragtime and the way in which it is accepted by the country have been brought about chiefly through the change which has gradually been made in the words and stories accompanying the music once the text of all ragtime songs was written in negro dialect and was about negroes in the cabin or in the cotton field or on the levee or at a jubilee or on sixth avenue or at a ball and about their love affairs to-day only a small proportion of ragtime songs relate at all to the negro the truth is ragtime is now national rather than racial but that does not abolish in any way the claim of the american negro as its originator ragtime music was originated by colored piano players in the questionable resorts of st louis memphis and other mississippi river towns these men did not know any more about the theory of music than they did about the theory of the universe they were guided by their natural musical instinct and talent but above all by the negroes extraordinary sense of rhythm anyone who is familiar with ragtime may note that its chief charm is not in melody but in rhythms these players often improvised crude and at times vulgar words to fit the music this was the beginning of the ragtime song ragtime music got its first popular hearing at chicago during the world's fair in that city from chicago it made its way to new york and then started on its universal triumph the earliest ragtime songs like topsy jess grew some of these earliest songs were taken down by white men the words slightly altered or changed and published under the names of the arrangers they sprang into immediate popularity and earned small fortunes the first to become widely known was the bully a levee song which had been long used by roustabouts along the mississippi it was introduced in new york by miss may irwin and gained instant popularity another one of these jess grew songs was one which for a while disputed for place with yankee doodle perhaps disputes it even to-day that song was a hot time in the old town to-night introduced and made popular by the colored regimental bands during the spanish-american war later there came along a number of colored men who were able to transcribe the old songs and write original ones i was about that time writing words to music for the music show stage in new york i was collaborating with my brother j rosamond johnson and the late bob cole i remember that we appropriated about the last one of the old Grew songs it was a song which had been sung for years all through the south the words were unprintable but the tune was irresistible and belonged to nobody we took it rewrote the verses telling an entirely different story from the original left the chorus as it was and published the song at first under the name of will handy it became very popular with college boys especially at football games and perhaps still is the song was oh didn't he ramble in the beginning and for quite a while almost all of the ragtime songs that were deliberately composed were the work of colored writers now the colored composers even in this particular field are greatly outnumbered by the white the reader might be curious to know if the jess grew songs have ceased to grow no they have not they are growing all the time the country has lately been flooded with several varieties of the blues these blues too had their origin in memphis and the towns along the mississippi they are a sort of lament of a lover who is feeling blue over the loss of his sweetheart the blues of memphis have been adulterated so much on broadway that they have lost their pristine hue but whenever you hear a piece of music which has a strain like this in it you will know you are listening to something which belonged originally to beale avenue memphis tennessee the original memphis blues so far as it can be credited to a composer must be credited to mr w c handy a colored musician of memphis as illustrations of the genuine ragtime song in the making i quote the words of two that were popular with the southern colored soldiers in france here is the first ma mammy's lying in her grave ma daddy done run away my sister's married a gamblin man and i've done gone astray yes i've done gone astray poor boy and i've done gone astray my sister's married a gamblin man and i've done gone astray po boy these lines are crude but they contain something of real poetry of that elusive thing which nobody can define and that you can only tell that it is there when you feel it you cannot read these lines without becoming reflective and feeling sorry for Po boy now take in this word-picture of utter dejection i'm just as miserable as i can be i'm unhappy even if i am free i'm feelin down i'm feelin blue i wander round don't know what to do i'm going to lay my haid on a railroad line let there be an o come and pacify my mind. these lines are no doubt one of the many versions of the famous blues they are also crude but they go straight to the mark the last two lines move with the swiftness of all great tragedy in spite of the bands which musicians and music teachers have placed on it the people still demand and enjoy ragtime in fact there is not a corner of the civilized world in which it is not known and liked and this proves its originality for if it were an imitation the people of europe at least would not have found it a novelty and it is proof of a more important thing it is proof that ragtime possesses the vital spark the power to appeal universally without which any artistic production no matter how approved its form may be is dead of course there are those who will deny that ragtime is an artistic production american musicians especially instead of investigating ragtime dismiss it with a contemptuous word but this has been the course of scholasticism in every branch of art whatever new thing the people like is pooh-poohed whatever is popular is regarded as not worth while the fact is nothing great or enduring in music has ever sprung full-fledged from the brain of any master the best he gives the world he gathers from the hearts of the people and runs it through the alembic of his genius ragtime deserves serious attention there is a lot of colorless and vicious imitation but there is enough that is genuine in one composition alone the memphis blues the musician will find not only great melodic beauty but a polyphonic structure that is amazing it is obvious that ragtime has influenced and in a large measure become our popular music but not many would know that it has influenced even our religious music those who are familiar with gospel hymns can at once see this influence if they will compare the songs of thirty years ago such as in the sweet by and by the ninety and nine etc with the up-to-date syncopated tunes that are sung in sunday-schools christian endeavour societies y m c a s and like gatherings to-day ragtime has not only influenced american music it has influenced american life indeed it has saturated american life it has become the popular medium for our national expression musically and who can say that it does not express the blare and jangle and the surge too of our national spirit any one who doubts that there is a peculiar heel tickling smile provoking joy awakening response compelling charm in ragtime needs only to hear a skillful performer play the genuine article needs only to listen to its bizarre harmonies its audacious resolutions often consisting of an abrupt jump from one key to another its intricate rhythms in which the accents fall in the most unexpected places but in which the fundamental beat is never lost in order to be convinced i believe it has its place as well as the music which draws from us sighs and tears now these dances which i have referred to and ragtime music may be lower forms of art but they are evidence of a power that will some day be applied to the higher forms and even now we need not stop at the negro's accomplishment through these lower forms in the spirituals or slave songs the Negro has given america not only its only folk songs but a mass of noble music i never think of this music but that i am struck by the wonder the miracle of its production how did the men who originated these songs manage to do it the sentiments are easily accounted for they are for the most part taken from the bible but the melodies where did they come from some of them so weirdly sweet and others so wonderfully strong take for instance go down moses i doubt that there is a stronger theme in the whole musical literature of the world it is to be noted that whereas the chief characteristic of ragtime is rhythm the chief characteristic of the spirituals is melody the melodies of steal away to jesus swing low sweet chariot nobody knows de trouble i see i couldn't hear nobody pray deep river oh freedom over me and many others of these songs possess a beauty that is what shall i say poignant in the riotous rhythms of ragtime the negro expressed his irrepressible buoyancy his keen response to the sheer joy of living in the spirituals he voiced his sense of beauty and his deep religious feeling naturally not as much can be said for the words of these songs as for the music most of the songs are religious some of them are songs expressing faith and endurance and a longing for freedom in the religious songs the sentiments and often the entire lines are taken bodily from the bible however there is no doubt that some of these religious songs have a meaning apart from the biblical text it is evident that the opening lines of go down moses go down moses way down in egypt land tell old pharaoh let my people go have a significance beyond the bondage of israel in egypt the bulk of the lines to these songs as is the case in all communal music is made up of choral iteration and incremental repetition of the leader's lines if the words are read this constant iteration and repetition are found to be tiresome and it must be admitted that the lines themselves are often very trite and yet there is frequently revealed a flash of real primitive poetry i give the following examples sometimes i feel like an eagle in de air you may bury me in de east you may bury me in de west but i'll hear de trumpet sound in a dat mornin i know de moonlight i know de starlight i lay dis body down i walk in de moonlight, i walk in de starlight i lay dis body down i know de graveyard i know de graveyard when i lay dis body down, i walk in de graveyard i walk true de graveyard to lay dis body down i lay in de grave and stretch out my arms i lay dis body down i go to de judgment in de evenin of de day when i lay dis body down and my soul and yo soul will meet in de day when i lay dis body down regarding the line i lay in de grave and stretch out my arms colonel thomas wentworth higginson of boston one of the first to give these slave songs serious study said never it seems to me since man first lived and suffered was his infinite longing for peace uttered more plaintively than in that line these negro folk-songs constitute a vast mine of material that has been neglected almost absolutely the only white writers who have in recent years given adequate attention and study to this music that i know of are mr h e Creville and mrs Natalie curtis Berlin we have our native composers denying the worth and importance of this music and trying to manufacture grand opera out of so-called indian themes but there is a great hope for the development of this music and that hope is the negro himself a worthy beginning has already been made by burleigh cook johnson and det and there will yet come great negro composers who will take this music and voice through it not only the soul of their race but the soul of america and does it not seem odd that this greatest gift of the negro has been the most neglected of all he possesses money and effort have been expended upon his development in every direction except this this gift has been regarded as a kind of side-show something for occasional exhibition wherein it is the touchstone it is the magic thing it is that by which the negro can bridge all chasms no persons however hostile can listen to negroes singing this wonderful music without having their hostility melted down this power of the negro to suck up the national spirit from the soil and create something artistic and original which at the same time possesses the note of universal appeal is due to a remarkable racial gift of adaptability it is more than adaptability it is a transfusive quality and the negro has exercised this transfusive quality not only here in america where the race lives in large numbers but in european countries where the number has been almost infinitesimal is it not curious to know that the greatest poet of russia is alexander pushkin a man of african descent that the greatest romancer of france is alexander dumas a man of african descent and that one of the greatest musicians of england is coleridge taylor a man of african descent the fact is fairly well known that the father of dumas was a negro of the french west indies and that the father of coleridge taylor was a native-born african but the facts concerning pushkin's african ancestry are not so familiar when peter the great was czar of russia some potentate presented him with a full-blooded negro of gigantic size peter the most eccentric ruler of modern times dressed this negro up in soldier clothes christened him hannibal and made him a special bodyguard but hannibal had more than size he had brain and ability he not only looked picturesque and imposing in soldier clothes he showed that he had in him the making of a real soldier peter recognized this and eventually made him a general he afterwards ennobled him and hannibal later married one of the ladies of the russian court this same hannibal was great-grandfather of pushkin the national poet of russia the man who bears the same relation to russian literature that shakespeare bears to english literature i know the question naturally arises if out of the few negroes who have lived in france there came a dumas and out of the few negroes who have lived in england there came a coleridge Taylor and if from the man who was at the time probably the only negro in russia there sprang that country's national poet why have not the millions of negroes in the united states with all the emotional and artistic endowment claimed for them produced a dumas or a coleridge Taylor or a pushkin the question seems difficult but there is an answer the negro in the united states is consuming all of his intellectual energy in this gruelling race struggle and the same statement may be made in a general way about the white south why does not the white south produce literature and art the white south too is consuming all of its intellectual energy in this lamentable conflict nearly all of the mental efforts of the white south run through one narrow channel the life of every southern white man and all of his activities are impassively limited by the ever-present negro problem and that is why as mr h l mencken puts it in all that vast region with its thirty or forty million people and its territory as large as a half a dozen frances or germany's there is not a single poet not a serious historian not a creditable composer not a critic good or bad not a dramatist dead or alive but even so the american negro has accomplished something in pure literature the list of those who have done so would be surprising both by its length and the excellence of the achievements one of the great books written in this country since the civil war is the work of a colored man the souls of black folk by w e b dubois such a list begins with phyllis wheatley in seventeen sixty-one a slave ship landed a cargo of slaves in boston among them was a little girl seven or eight years of age she attracted the attention of john wheatley a wealthy gentleman of boston who purchased her as a servant for his wife mrs wheatley was a benevolent woman she noticed the girl's quick mind and determined to give her opportunity for its development twelve years later phyllis published a volume of poems the book was brought out in london where phyllis was for several months an object of great curiosity and attention phyllis wheatley has never been given her rightful place in american literature by some sort of conspiracy she is kept out of most of the books especially the textbooks on literature used in the schools of course she is not a great american poet and in her day there were no great american poets but she is an important american poet her importance if for no other reason rests on the fact that save one she is the first in order of time of all the women poets of america and she is among the first of all american poets to issue a volume it seems strange that the books generally give space to a mention of urian oakes president of harvard college and to quotations from the crude and lengthy elegy which he published in sixteen sixty seven and print examples from the execrable versified version of the psalms made by the new england divines and yet deny a place to phillis wheatley here are the opening lines from the elegy by oakes which is quoted from in most of the books on american literature reader i am no poet but i grieve behold here what that passion can do that forced a verse without apollo's leave and whether the learned sisters would or no there was no need for urian to admit what his handiwork declared but this from the versified psalms is still worse yet it is found in the books the lord's song sing can we being in strangers land then let loose her skill my right hand if i jerusalem forget anne bradstreet preceded phyllis wheatley by a little over twenty years she published her volume of poems the tenth muse in seventeen fifty let us strike a comparison between the two anne bradstreet was a wealthy cultivated puritan girl the daughter of thomas dudley governor of bay colony phyllis as we know was a negro slave-girl born in africa let us take them both at their best and in the same vein the following stanza is from anne's poem entitled contemplation while musing thus with contemplation fed and thousand fancies buzzing in my brain the sweet-tongued philomel perched o'er my head and chanted forth a most melodious strain which rapt me so with wonder and delight i judged my hearing better than my sight and wished me wings with her awhile to take my flight and the following is from phyllis's poem entitled imagination imagination who can sing thy force or who describe the swiftness of thy course soaring through air to find the bright abode the imperial palace of the thundering god we on thy pinions can surpass the wind and leave the rolling universe behind from star to star the mental optics rove measure the skies and range the realms above there in one view we grasp the mighty whole or with new worlds amaze the unbounded soul we do not think the black woman suffers much by comparison with the white thomas jefferson said of Phyllis, religion has produced a uh, Phyllis wheatley but it could not produce a poet her poems are beneath contempt it is quite likely that jefferson's criticism was directed more against religion than against phyllis's poetry on the other hand general george washington wrote her with his own hand a letter in which he thanked her for a poem which she had dedicated to him he later received her with marked courtesy at his camp at cambridge it appears certain that phyllis was the first person to apply to george washington the phrase first in peace the phrase occurs in her poem addressed to his excellency general george washington written in seventeen seventy five the encomium first in war first in peace first in the hearts of his countrymen was originally used in the resolutions presented to congress on the death of washington december seventeen ninety nine phyllis wheatley's poetry is the poetry of the eighteenth century she wrote when pope and gray were supreme it is easy to see that pope was her model had she come under the influence of wordsworth byron or keats or shelley she would have done greater work as it is her work must not be judged by the work and standards of a later day but by the work and standards of her own day and her own contemporaries by this method of criticism she stands out as one of the important characters in the making of american literature without any allowances for her sex or her antecedents according to a bibliographical checklist of american negro poetry compiled by mr arthur a schomberg more than one hundred negroes in the united states have published volumes of poetry ranging in size from pamphlets to books of from one hundred to three hundred pages about thirty of these writers fill in the gap between phyllis wheatley and paul laurence dunbar just here it is of interest to note that a negro wrote and published a poem before phyllis wheatley arrived in this country from africa he was jupiter hammond a slave belonging to a mr lloyd of queen's village long island in seventeen sixty hammond published a poem eighty-eight lines in length entitled an evening thought salvation by christ with penitential cries in seventeen eighty eight he published an address to miss phyllis wheatley Ethiopian poetess in boston who came from africa at eight years of age and soon became acquainted with the gospel of jesus christ these two poems do not include all that hammond wrote the poets between phyllis wheatley and dunbar must be considered more in the light of what they attempted than of what they accomplished many of them showed marked talent but barely a half-dozen of them demonstrated even mediocre mastery of technique and the use of poetic material and forms and yet there are several names that deserve mention george m horton francis e harper james m bell and Alberry a whitman all merit consideration when due allowances are made for their limitations in education training and general culture the limitations of horton were greater than those of either of the others he was born a slave in north carolina in seventeen ninety seven and as a young man began to compose poetry without being able to write it down later he received some instruction from professors of the university of north carolina at which institution he was employed as a janitor he published a volume of poems the hope of liberty in eighteen twenty nine mrs harper bell and whitman would stand out if only for the reason that each of them attempted sustained work mrs harper published her first volume of poems in eighteen fifty four but later she published moses a story of the nile a poem which ran to fifty-two closely printed pages bell in eighteen sixty four published a poem of twenty-eight pages in celebration of president lincoln's emancipation proclamation in eighteen seventy he published a poem of thirty-two pages in celebration of the ratification of the fifteenth amendment to the constitution whitman published his first volume of poems a book of two hundred and fifty-three pages in eighteen seventy seven but in eighteen eighty four he published the rape of florida an epic poem written in four cantos and done in the Spenserian stanza and which ran to ninety-seven closely printed pages the poetry of both mrs harper and of whitman had a large degree of popularity one of mrs harper's books went through more than twenty editions of these four poets it is whitman who reveals not only the greatest imagination but also the more skilful workmanship his lyric power at its best may be judged from the following stanza from the rape of florida come now my love the moon is on the lake upon the waters is my light canoe come with me love and gladsome oars shall make a music on the parting wave for you come o'er the waters deep and dark and blue come where the lilies in the marge have sprung come with me love for oh my love is true this is the song that on the lake was sung the boatman sang it when his heart was young some idea of whitman's capacity for dramatic narration may be gained from the following lines taken from not a man and yet a man a poem of even greater length than the rape of florida a flash of steely lightning from his hand strikes down the groaning leader of the band divides his startled comrades and again descending leaves fair dora's captor's slain. her seizing them within a strong embrace out in the dark he wheels his flying pace he speaks not but with stalwart tenderness her swelling bosom firm to his doth press springs like a stag that flees the eager hound and like a whirlwind rustles o'er the ground her locks swim in dishevelled wildness o'er his shoulders streaming to his waist and more while on and on strong as a rolling flood his sweeping footsteps part the silent wood it is curious and interesting to trace the growth of individuality and race consciousness in this group of poets jupiter hammond's verses were almost entirely religious exhortations only very seldom does phyllis wheatley sound a native note four times in single lines she refers to herself as afric's muse in a poem of admonition addressed to the students at the university of cambridge in new england she refers to herself as follows ye blooming plants of human race divine and ethiop tells you tis your greatest foe but one looks in vain for some outburst or even complaint against the bondage of her people for some agonizing cry about her native land in two poems she refers definitely to africa as her home but in each instance there seems to be under the sentiment of the lines a feeling of almost smug contentment at her own escape therefrom in the poem on being brought from africa to america she says twas mercy brought me from my pagan land taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a god and there's a saviour too once i redemption neither sought or knew some view our sable race with scornful eye their color is a diabolic dye remember christians negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic train in the poem addressed to the earl of dartmouth she speaks of freedom and makes a reference to the parents from whom she was taken as a child a reference which cannot but strike the reader as rather unimpassioned should you my lord while you peruse my song wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung whence flow these wishes for the common good by feeling hearts alone best understood i young in life by seeming cruel fate was snatched from afric's fancied happy seat what pangs excruciating must molest what sorrows labour in my parents breast steeled was that soul and by no misery moved that from a father seized his babe beloved such such my case and can i then but pray others may never feel tyrannic sway the bulk of phyllis wheatley's work consists of poems addressed to people of prominence her book was dedicated to the countess of huntington at whose house she spent the greater part of her time while in england on his repeal of the stamp act she wrote a poem to king george the third whom she saw later another poem she wrote to the earl of dartmouth whom she knew a number of her verses were addressed to other persons of distinction indeed it is apparent that phyllis was far from being a democrat she was far from being a democrat not only in her social ideas but also in her political ideas unless a religious meaning is given to the closing lines of her ode to general washington she was a decided royalist a crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine with gold and fading Washington be thine. Nevertheless, she was an ardent patriot. Her ode to General Washington, seventeen seventy-five, her spirited poem on Major General Lee, seventeen seventy-six, and her poem Liberty and Peace, written in celebration of the close of the war, reveal not only strong patriotic feeling but an understanding of the issues at stake in her poem on major-general lee she makes her hero reply thus to the taunts of the british commander and to whose hands he has been delivered through treachery o oh, arrogance of tongue and wild ambition ever prone to wrong believest thou chief that armies such as thine can stretch in dust that heaven defended line? in vain allies may swarm from distant lands and demons aid in formidable bands great as thou art thou shunst the field of fame disgrace to britain and the british name when offered combat by the noble foe foe to misrule why did the sword forego the easy conquest of the rebel land perhaps too easy for thy martial hand what various causes to the field invite for plunder you and we for freedom fight her cause divine with generous ardour fires and every bosom glows as she inspires already thousands of your troops have fled to the drear mansions of the silent dead columbia too beholds with streaming eyes her heroes fall tis freedom's sacrifice so wills the power who with convulsive storms shakes impious realms and nature's face deforms yet those brave troops and numerous as the sands one soul inspires one general chief commands find in your train of boasted heroes one to match the praise of godlike washington thrice happy chief in whom the virtues join and heaven taught prudence speaks the man divine what phyllis wheatley failed to achieve is due in no small degree to her education and environment her mind was steeped in the classics her verses are filled with classical and mythological allusions she knew ovid thoroughly and was familiar with other latin authors she must have known alexander pope by heart and too she was reared and sheltered in a wealthy and cultured family a wealthy and cultured boston family she never had the opportunity to learn life she never found out her own true relation to life and to her surroundings and it should not be forgotten that she was only about thirty years old when she died the impulsion or the compulsion that might have driven her genius off the worn paths out on a journey of exploration phyllis wheatley never received but whatever her limitations she merits more than america has accorded her horton who was born three years after phyllis wheatley's death expressed in all of his poetry strong complaint at his condition of slavery and a deep longing for freedom the following verses are typical of his style and his ability alas and am i born for this to wear this slavish chain deprived of all created bliss through hardship toil and pain come liberty thou cheerful sound roll through my ravished ears come let my grief and joys be drowned and drive away my fears in mrs harper we find something more than the complaint and the longing of horton we find an expression of a sense of wrong and injustice the following stanzas are from a poem addressed to the white women of america you can sigh o'er the sad-eyed armenian who weeps in her desolate home you can mourn o'er the exile of russia from kindred and friends doomed to roam but hark from our southland are floating sobs of anguish murmurs of pain and women heart-stricken are weeping or their tortured and slain have ye not o oh my favorite sisters just a plea a prayer or a tear for mothers who dwell neath the shadows of agony hatred and fear weep not o oh my well-sheltered sisters weep not for the negro alone but weep for your sons who must gather the crops which their fathers have sown whitman in the midst of the rape of florida a poem in which he related the taking of the state of florida from the seminoles stops and discusses the race question he discusses it in many other poems and he discusses it from many different angles in whitman we find not only an expression of a sense of wrong and injustice but we hear a note of faith and a note also of defiance for example in the opening to canto Two of the rape of florida greatness by nature cannot be entailed it is an office ending with the man sage hero saviour though the sire be hailed the sun may reach obscurity in the van sublime achievements no no patent plan man's immortality's a book with seals and none but god shall open none else can but opened it the mystery reveals manhood's conquest of man to heaven's respect appeals is manhood less because man's face is black let thunders of the loosened seals reply who shall the rider's restive steed turn back or who withstand the arrows he lets fly between the mountains of eternity genius ride forth thou gift and torch of heaven the mastery's kindled in thine eye to conquest ride. Thy bow of strength is given the trampled hordes if cast before thee shall be driven tis hard to judge if hatred of one's race by those who deem themselves superior born be worse than that quiescence and disgrace which only merits and should only scorn oh let me see the negro night and morn pressing and fighting in for place and power all earth is place all time th auspicious hour while heaven leans forth to look or will he quail or cower ah i abhor his protest and complaint his pious looks and patience i despise he can't evade the test disguised as saint the manly voice of freedom bids him rise and shake himself before philistine eyes and like a lion roused no sooner than a foe dare come play all his energies and court the fray with fury if he can for hell itself respects a fearless manly man it may be said that none of these poets strike a deep native strain or sound a distinctively original note either in matter or form that is true but the same thing may be said of all the american poets down to the writers of the present generation with the exception of poe and walt whitman the thing in which these black poets are mostly excelled by their contemporaries is mere technique Section 1.